4: Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website,
0: SolidarityBreakfast.org.au
2: Solidarity forever!
0: And good morning, it's Annie. I'm here all on my lonesome today because uh, young Kim Doyle and her uh, illustrious family are all down at Port Arlington for the National Celtic a festival. You may not know this, but uh, Kim is a dab hand at the cello, and uh, there's this uh, remarkable uh, collection of Doyle girls, women, uh, mother and daughters, who uh, all are about the same height, with Walburn hair, and play the socks off. Uh, Uh, Celtic uh, instruments uh, and they'll be down at uh, Port Arlington. So uh, if you were interested in getting down there, listen to the program and then jump into the car and go down there for a rollicking long weekend. But uh, today at Solidarity Breakfast, we've got quite a few interesting things to to dabble in. The first is... uh, we're going to go back to the ACTU Congress I, as if you were listening to stick together there was a little bit of information about the ACTU Congress that happened uh, last week uh the keynote speaker was a man called Robert B Reich now Robert B Reich was uh the secretary of labor in uh, Clinton's first first uh uh term in um, as uh, president in America and uh 19 19- 93 to 1997, he has been, he's a, at the moment, he's the Chancellor Professor of Public Policy at the Goldman School of Public Policy at the University of Collingwood, California, Berkeley. I wonder if they put that on his front door, in his office door. (laughs) It's incredibly long. But anyway, he's a a, a Chancellor at uh, uh, Berkeley and he's got, uh, uh, he was a, contributing editor of the New Republic, uh, Harvard Business Review, the New York Times and the uh, Wall Street Journal. But he's also quite famous for some uh, earth-shattering books that he's put out, Aftershock, The Next Economy and the America's Future, and also an e-book called Beyond Outrage. He's also written a film, uh, his co-production with uh, Jacob Korblut, uh, a documentary special jury award for achievement in filmmaking winner at the Sundance Film Festival called "Inequality for All." Anyway, he was the keynote speaker at uh, one of them at the uh, at the ACTU Congress because he is uh, a world authority on the future of uh, work and uh, labour. So let's hear what he's got to say. I'll. It's not particularly fantastic uh, quality, so I'll come, jump in because it's Skype, it's a Skype uh, cross. and uh, But listen carefully because he's got a lot to say that's uh, relevant to uh, the world and Australia and its future battles with the uh, neoliberal Abbott government. Uh, later on, we've got rank and file, and uh, we've also get something from Kevin. Kevin's going to enlighten us about uh, this is the week that was. And later on, we're going to have the return of Noah Basil, who's going to have a chat about uh, how Egypt has been reintegrated into the U.S. world order. Okay, so let's go with a bit of a reminder of uh, what next week it will bring.
2: Did you know that each donation over $2 you make to 3CR's Radiothon is tax deductible? That means that when you're doing your tax return business, you can claim your 3CR donation as a legitimate tax deduction. To make a pledge to this year's Radiothon, call
1: the station on 9419 8377.
0: Yeah, that's right. Make your donations now. And thank you very much for those people who already have. Next weekend will be uh, the Radiothon for Solidarity Breakfast. And the live hour and a half will include all our favourites. Lynn Beaton, Kim Doyle, myself, maybe even Lalitha Chalaya. But uh, we'll tell you about what uh, Lalitha is going to be doing on that weekend, which might preclude her from the Solidarity Breakfast radiothon program. But before I do that, let's listen to Robert Reich to see what it is that he's got to tell us.
5: Well, I I want to talk to you quite candidly and frankly about about the importance of trade unions, about inequality and about the American model. Let's call it the American model of capitalism. Uh, And if uh, you remember one thing from my talking to you today, uh, just one thing, uh, that is this. Uh, Do not follow uh, the American model of capitalism, uh, because the American model of capitalism uh, is not working for most Americans. Uh, Over the past 30 years, uh, the typical American, uh, that is the person who is right in the middle, uh, half above and half below, uh, has seen no increase whatsoever in Paychecks uh, adjusted for inflation. Uh, That is, 30 years ago, the typical worker was earning, uh, in fact, a little bit more uh, than the typical American worker is earning today. Even though the United States economy is much, much larger. In fact, by some measures, the United States economy is almost twice as large as it was 30 years ago. Where did the money go Uh, if uh, the typical worker, the worker right in the middle, did not see an increase in paychecks? Uh, and uh, certainly the poor uh, did not do better. Uh, Where did all of that money go representing all of that dramatic increase in gross domestic product uh, in the total economy? Well, the answer is it went to the top. Uh, That is, we have not seen in the United States such a concentration of income and wealth. uh, In the top 1% or the top one-tenth of 1%, or if you want to measure it that way, the top uh, 100th of 1%. We've not seen this degree of concentration of income and wealth here since, by some measures, the uh, 1890s, uh, by other measures, the 1920s. But however you want to measure it, uh, the fact of the matter is that uh, we have uh, extraordinary inequality uh, in terms of the very top versus almost everybody else. Uh, the problem with this kind of gaping inequality, and I, I want to get back to why it is very closely related to the American model and why it's also related to the decline of trade unions uh, in the United States. Uh, but the big problems with this kind of inequality uh, are number one, uh, that uh, it means essentially that the middle class, where most of your demand in the economy comes from, the, the purchasing power. Of the vast middle class uh, has been reduced dramatically and if your middle class doesn't have much purchasing power because all of the money is going to the top uh, then uh, it's very hard for the economy to get out of a recession uh, this recession has been one of the most uh, at the deepest and the recovery uh, one of the most anemic uh, in American history and the reason is that most people just don't have enough money to spend and they're spending therefore it uh, doesn't stimulate enough activity uh, to get the economy back in motion. Uh, as many of you know, uh, the demand side of the economy is critically important. If uh, you know, We have some people in the United States, uh, mostly corporate CEOs and some people on Wall Street, saying that uh, the job creators are the corporate executives and, uh, and, and Wall Street uh, allocators of capital. But that's wrong. Uh, The real job creators in the United States, as in Australia or in any other uh, capitalist economy, the real job creators are the middle class and the poor. They're the ones who spend money. Uh, And because of their spending, businesses have an incentive to hire and expand. Uh, If there weren't enough spending and there hasn't been enough spending by consumers, uh, businesses don't have an incentive to expand and they don't have an incentive to hire. So instead of thinking about the job creators as being at the top, the real job creators are average working people and the poor, uh, whose spending drives the economy. So the first big problem with the kind of widening, almost savage inequality we've had in the United States is that it is bad for the economy overall. The second big problem with this kind of inequality is that upward mobility is very, very difficult. If you are poor, it's hard to get into a middle class that is shrinking. Uh, It's not very complicated to understand why. If there are fewer places in the middle class, then if you're poor, you are going to face much, much more intense competition for each of those spaces. Uh, A shrinking middle class is also going to be fearful of the poor. Uh, It's not going to want to be terribly generous uh, with uh, help. To the poor in terms of enabling upward mobility. And thirdly and finally, as I said a moment ago, a, a shrinking and stressed middle class is not going to spend enough to keep the economy growing. And without a growing economy, it's even more difficult for the poor to move upward. Uh, so, uh, again, the second big problem of the degree of inequality we have is that upward mobility is stymied. And that's upward mobility mainly for the poor, but it's also upward mobility even within the middle class. The third big problem that comes with the kind of inequality we are seeing in the United States is its effect on politics and on democracy. Because when you have so much money and so much wealth at the very top, along with that money and wealth comes political power. Uh, Now, political power can be exercised in a whole variety of ways. One of the most direct ways it's exercised, at least in the United States, uh, is through campaign donations, campaign contributions. uh, But it can also be exercised uh, through establishing institutes uh, that uh, come up with studies that tell the public that certain things are problems and certain other things are not problems. Or with great wealth comes influence over the media uh, in terms of determining and, and letting the public know or shaping the public's mind about what is a public problem and what's not a public problem. And with great wealth uh, comes all other forms of influence at the top, undermining the capacity of a democracy to really reflect truly the needs and wishes of most of its people. Uh, In the United States, uh, turnout in the last election, uh, midterm election, we call it, because it's not quite a presidential year, in 2014, that turnout was at historic lows. In fact, we haven't seen such a low turnout of eligible voters since 1942. And 1942 was a war year in which a big portion of the uh, electorate was, was overseas fighting a war. Why have we, do we have such a low turnout uh, in elections now? Partly because people are so uh, cynical about politics. They feel like the game is rigged. Uh, People say, well, why bother voting? Again, a a, a very worrisome uh, symptom of widening inequality.
0: Hi, I'm Sonny Drake, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM. And we're listening to Robert Reich, who was the U.S. Secretary of Labor in 1993, who was speaking at the ACTU Congress last week. We'll continue with Robert Reich.
5: Here's where unions come in. Research by the International Monetary Fund and other research by other academics across the spectrum here in the United States and elsewhere uh, have shown unequivocally that there's a high correlation between union density and equality and social equality and also economic equality. Uh, the more people are unionized, the more people uh, in your workforce are members of unions, the more bargaining power uh, the middle class has and the working class has uh, to get a fair uh, portion of the gains from economic growth. When unionization declines, the bargaining power of the middle class and the working class also declines. In fact, in the United States, uh, we had, in 1955, over 35% of our workers as members of unions. Uh, now, when you have over 35% of your working class and your middle class uh, me- union members in the private sector, uh, that means that you've got a great deal of bargaining leverage, which was responsible for very widespread prosperity in the 1950s that carried over in the United States into the 1960s. Unions uh, really led the way with regard to that prosperity. And when you have 35% unionization, the 65% who are not unionized uh, are working for employers who understand that if they didn't follow the same uh, wages and working conditions that were agreed to uh, in the unionized sector, they would become unionized next. Uh, And so that those unionized bargains become the prevailing wages and prevailing working conditions for your entire economy, which is what was the case in the United States in the 1950s, 1960s, and even early 1970s. But then unionization began to decline in America, partly because of uh, globalization uh, and trade, but more importantly because of politics. Uh, We, in effect, didn't know we were doing it. I don't think many people were aware of it, but we chose policies that reduced unionization, that made it harder to form unions, that made it easier for employers uh, to prevent unionization or to bust unions that were already in existence, to the point where now, in the United States, if you look at the entire private sector of the economy, uh, exclude the government sector, but everything that is non-government, you find that uh, it's no longer 35% of the workforce unionized. It's now down to fewer than 7% unionized. And when you get down to that small a number, that small a percentage of uh, your workforce unionized, uh, the, the unions and your middle class and working class simply don't have the bargaining power, uh, the bargaining leverage uh, to get a, a fair share of the gains from economic growth. Uh, and as a result, what happens, uh, those gains go to the top, which is exactly what's happened, as I suggested to you, uh, over the past 30 years, uh, the middle class starts shrinking. In the United States, as unionization declined, uh, beginning in the late 1970s, early 1980s, uh, really with the uh, presidency of Ronald Reagan, uh, you find that the middle class also starts shrinking. The middle class's portion of of economic gains begins to shrink, uh, directly correlated with the shrinkage of your unionized segment of the workforce. Uh, The other thing that unions do, uh, besides uh, giving the middle class and the working class the bargaining leverage they need to claim a fair share of the gains from economic growth, uh, is that unions represent politically the ideals and needs of average working people. That's why, in the United States, unions were so instrumental in getting uh, minimum wage legislation, uh, in getting uh, Social Security. The 40 hour work week with time and a half for overtime, workers' compensation, legislation for worker safety, and uh, Medicare, all the things that we now take for granted in the United States as basic parts of a workplace contract were actually instigated, supported, and driven politically uh, by the union movement. And now that unions have shriveled in the United States down to fewer than 7% of the private sector. We see the results. Uh, We don't have that kind of political force representing the middle class and working class. The most powerful political forces are the moneyed interests, the big moneyed interests. Uh, And they, what do they want? Well, they don't want to increase the minimum wage, uh, and they've refused in Congress to increase the minimum wage. Uh, Your minimum wage in Australia is, uh, as I recall, about $15 an hour. Ours is uh, is about uh, $8 an hour. Uh, Our minimum wage is actually 25% below, uh, adjusted for inflation, 25% below what it was uh, in 1968. Uh, So you can see that even with regard to the minimum wage or or take unemployment insurance, right now in the United States, only about 25%, only about a quarter of workers who have lost their jobs are eligible to collect unemployment insurance. Uh, That's way down from what it was before. Uh, In the United States, uh, far fewer workers get pensions than uh, got them before, when unions were were stronger. Um, There is no such thing in the United States as paid sick leave or paid uh, family and medical leave. There are no minimum number of vacation days. In fact, many workers in the United States get no vacation days at all. They're paid vacation days. They have got to uh, take vacation days away from their own, uh, in effect, their own paychecks. Uh, So... By contrast, in Australia you have, because you have strong unions, much stronger than unions in the United States, uh, you have uh, not only maintained, but uh, you have maintained in the face of very fierce political resistance uh, many of these workplace protections, and you have uh, and you've grown them. Uh, paid holidays, uh, better employment conditions, uh, a universal uh, superannuation system, Social Security, Medicare, better job security healthier and safer workplaces, all because of the strength of unions in Australia. When I was Secretary of Labor in the 1990s, uh, there were many, many times when I had to rely on the unions we had. Again, not as strong as they were in the 1960s or 70s, but still stronger than they are right now. Uh, I had to rely on the unions and the strength of unions to get uh, Uh, stronger worker safety laws, uh, to strengthen uh, pension protections, uh, and also uh, to raise the minimum wage, even just a little bit. Without that kind of union backing, it was impossible to get the political forces aligned in back of what the working class and what average working people and middle class in the United States actually needed.
0: Hi, this is Liz Stringer and you're listening to the Mighty 3CR on 855am and digital radio, 3cr.org.au. And you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and we're uh, listening to Robert Reich who uh, spoke at the ACTU uh, Congress last week. He was the former US Secretary of Labor in 1993 in the first Clinton administration. He's also a best-selling author and uh, has recently been um, involved in making a film called Inequality for All, which which, uh, won um, a special jury prize at uh, the Sundance uh, Film Festival in 2013. We'll just listen to the last of what Robert has to say.
5: So, again, just to summarise, the American model of capitalism is one in which uh, you have basically very, very few worker protections. Inequality is very, very wide. Uh, unions are very weak. Uh, there's a great deal of what's called labor market flexibility. Now, please, whenever you hear the term labor market flexibility, watch your wallets. Uh, because a lot of economists, uh, many of whom are paid by big business and by Wall Street, by the financial sector, uh, they uh, think that labor market flexibility is wonderful for the economy. But what they mean by labor flexibility uh, is uh, the ability of, of companies to hire and fire at will, uh, to have no unions to contend with, uh, to have no uh, job uh, restrictions or no uh, nothing to protect workers. That's what that's what you that's what labor market flexibility means. Uh, a true flexible labor labor market would enable workers to move easily from job to job, maintaining their wages, maintaining their income, uh, with the kind of safety nets that are required to give people the courage to change and the ability to change. Uh, and that's something that is a, a true, uh, I think, goal. That is labor market flexibility in its best sense. But it is not the way that term labor market flexibility is often used. Uh, here in the United States, uh, what we have is not so much a, an unemployment crisis although uh, unemployment levels are still quite high. Uh, Not as high as they were at the depths of the Great Recession in 2008 and 2009, but they're still relatively high. But the biggest problem we have in the United States is that even though jobs are coming back, wages are not coming back. Uh, Wage levels are still quite low. Uh, And the reason wages are not coming back in part is because, as I said before, uh, the middle class and the working class don't have the bargaining and leverage because again unions are very very weak another aspect of what has happened in the United States is that the the model of full employment uh, the model of somebody working for an employer a uh, full-time with a full-time wage with a pension that model has disappeared what we have instead are people who are working but they are very often working part time, or they're working for a number of employers. They are temporary workers, or they're contract workers. We have many companies in the United States uh, that have taken their employment contracts and essentially ripped them up and said to their workers, If you want to be employed, you have got to become independent contractors, or you've got to work for independent contractors, which means that the entire edifice of workplace protection which was created between 1933 and the 1970s in the United States everything i mentioned before in terms of starting with minimum wage all the way through social security uh workers compensation for injuries workplace safety all of that has been thrown out the window for all of these workers who are now in the non-regular employment sector of the economy which is growing uh, and continues to grow uh, right now, about 20% of the American workforce is temporary workers, part-time workers, independent contract workers, and free agents of various forms and sorts. Uh, but that is growing rapidly. Uh, in a few years, it will be up to 30%. My prediction is that in 10 years, it will be a majority of you know, American workers. Again, wages are being set in kind of a spot auction market uh, who have no workplace protections who have no benefits, uh, in terms of health benefits or anything else, uh, and who are essentially uh, insecure because they can be fired at any time. Uh, Two-thirds of American workers are living paycheck to paycheck. They don't have savings. They are entirely dependent on their employer at the moment, uh, and they have absolutely no job security. I want to stress to you that this all is a function of the American capitalist model which favors uh, the owners of capital, favors big companies, big businesses, and Wall Street and the financial sector, but disfavors average working people, particularly hourly workers uh, and the poor. What we see in the United States uh, particularly over the last 10 years is that the portion of the economy going to corporate profits is at record highs. The portion of the economy going to Wages is at record lows. And so, uh, in terms of the age-old contest between capital and labor, uh, capital is winning dramatically. How can you avoid the American model of capitalism? Well, let me suggest some ways. Uh, be on the lookout uh, for legislation that begins privatizing public sector, legislation that, for example, requires people to uh, absorb more and more of the costs of health care in terms of individual families paying it uh, rather than having a public health care sector. Be on the lookout for legislation that imposes on families more and more the cost of education, uh, including university education. Uh, Be on the lookout for any attempt to weaken social safety nets including uh, healthcare care and education. And also, keep your eyes peeled for that phrase that I used before, labor market flexibility used to mean basically the abrogation uh, of worker rights, of job security, uh, of any kind of safety nets that average working people desperately need in terms of maintaining their peace of mind, uh, maintaining their family incomes. Beware of any attempt to reduce the minimum wage or to fight against increases in the minimum wage. I mean, your your minimum wage ideally ought to be half the median wage. Uh, That's what it used to be in the United States. Uh, That's what a civilized society uh, should have. Uh, Finally, let me just say this. Uh, The purpose of an economy. Uh, If you read the business press, particularly in the United States, you would think that the purpose of an economy uh, is to drive up the stock market or the purpose of the economy is to have a higher, uh, gross domestic product. Uh, That is not the purpose of an economy. That's not the way we measure the success of an economy. The way you measure the success of an economy is how uh, working people are living, the the living standards of average working people. Uh, If they're going up, you have a successful economy. If they're stagnating or declining, you have an unsuccessful economy. Uh, And I would say that uh, the way you should uh, talk about uh, the Australian economy in terms of its relative success or its relative failure is what's happening to the median wage, Uh, what's happening to the minimum wage, what's happening to workers who are uh, uh, the bottom 50 percent of the population. Are they doing better? Or are they doing worse? Or are they just uh, staying exactly the same? Are they participating in the growth of the economy or are they not participating in the growth of the economy? That's the test of a healthy economy. It's the test of a healthy and growing middle class. It's the test of whether the poor can get into the middle class because you have to have a healthy and growing middle class uh, to maintain all of that. And ultimately, it's a test of the strength of the trade union movement, of labor unions. Uh, And the ability of labor unions not only to represent uh, the needs uh, and uh, the goals of average working people, but also uh, the ability of labor unions uh, to get, through collective bargaining, a fair portion of the gains from economic growth.
0: Come along to Women in Shorts, a night of eclectic short films by and about women from across the globe. Comedies, dramas, docos, we've got them all. A fundraiser for Women on the Line, 3CR's National Women's Current Affairs Program. Monday the 8th of June at Long Plain, 318 St George's Road, Fitzroy North, Melbourne. Films start at 6.30pm sharp. Tickets on the door, $10. See you there, Monday the 8th of June.
3: And welcome back to another edition of Rank and File Radio on Community Radio, 3CR 855 AM. And today we're going to take a look at the ACTU Congress. And in the studio, Chris White is here to view the Congress. Listeners may recall that in the previous week, uh, Chris gave reports every morning on the breakfast program. And welcome to the program, Chris.
1: Good, thanks very much, uh, Marcus. I think the... Uh, positive aspects of the ACTU Congress is the uh, excitement and good spirit of uh, 1,100 delegates from different industries, different unions, different occupations coming together and definitely expressing uh, solidarity uh, with each other. And I think this is important because unions have three main aspects, uh, industry sector or occupational unions have their own campaigns and, for example, nearly every union reported on their campaigns. So I'll just mention, for example, Commonwealth public servants that people may not be particularly interested in, but it's extremely difficult, as you can imagine, working in the government with the Abbott government as the employer, cutting thousands of jobs, taking away, not offering any wage increases, but taking away existing allowances and gains. And insulting uh, the union—that's uh, Minister uh, Abetz. So you can imagine how difficult it is and how ruthless they are. Well, the CPSU, the union, is now having our stoppages coming up in 17 uh, different areas. The main ones being the Tax Office, uh, Department of Immigration, Border Protection, Department of Human Services. So they are actually taking rolling four-hour stoppages, and. All the rest of the unions, we have to work out, how can we give solidarity with these Commonwealth public servants? Um, So unions have uh, particular sectors, particular industries. Unions are very good. The second aspect is having community campaigns and unions are now uh, very good with uh, particular uh, political uh, campaigning. Uh, But thirdly, unions are working-class institutions and we have to work out how we can have unions taking more of a class attitude and the ACTU is a big organisation able to contact initially members, one and a half million members, but getting up to uh, 10 million members in campaigning. So part of the argument is how do we develop a class, a working class aspect amongst the unions? How can we take up the challenges of implementing the policies, implementing the resolutions, uniting unions more closely in a working class so that not only do we vote Abbott out, not only do unions and the working class have the power to reverse all the cuts and all the incredible anti-working class politics of the Abbott government, but to convince the next parliament and the next uh, government, and might be Bill Shorten Prime Minister, convince them to actually pass stronger laws guaranteeing workers' rights, such as the right to strike, and delivering all the particular policies. So the ACTU spent three days and a lot of debates uh, beforehand uh, developing across-the-board policies that will benefit all workers. This is in a number of areas, workers' rights, uh, campaigning to increase minimum wages, uh, defeat the attack on penalty rates, develop policies for more secure work. For example, there's a good policy up now to regulate labour hire companies to force them to give permanent work. So that goes across for all workers. Same thing with universal health care. Again, ACTU's been strong and unions against fees for doctors and we have to then push the next government to have better funding for hospitals, medical services. Same thing with education. The education unions campaign strongly for more money for education, but across the working class, other unions also have to support. Same thing with the um, pushback against the government on higher education. Public services should really be owned by everybody, not just opposing privatisation, but really going uh, back to having some more government Uh, control of public services because otherwise we won't be able to implement policies, Uh, secure retirement uh, policies. And in terms of the big questions of the economy, taxation, let's force the multinational companies to pay their proper taxes. Let's have a financial transactions tax so we can fund the policies. So, in fact, the ACTU, and you could go on to the... uh, onto their website and have a look at the policies when they come through, adopted a charter we can fight against. But not only that, they argued, and apparently there's quite a lot of argument behind the scenes, they've raised more money. Uh, it's only an extra $2 per member, a $2 campaign levy, but they will be campaigning now from now on for three years. Now, this was significant because many in the unions criticised the ACTU at the end of the Successful Your Rights at Work campaign because they dropped the campaign. In 2007, we defeated the Howard government, but then we dropped all our campaigning. Well, now the unions are saying, if and when Labor government, Bill Shorten, gets back in, then the campaign has to continue on all of these issues. And not only that, they've got a $13 million campaign fund. So across the board, the ACTU is going to be employing more... Union organisers in each marginal electorate. Uh, There's going to be over 22 new uh, people to campaign, having conversations firstly with existing union members, those that are not involved in uh, politics, to get them involved, and then to get those union members to go out and say to the rest of the community, we really do have to. Uh, campaign to get rid of this uh, Abbott government. So that was quite uh, significant that, um, those, uh, you know, that that was ador- endorsed and it will be a campaigning. So we we'll really have to see and I encourage listeners to get involved in your unions, have a look at the policies and get involved in across the board class politics. Otherwise, the big corporations, the 1%, the rulers, will again dominate Dominate even when we have a Labor government, which just quite often happens. Very difficult to summarise all of the policies that impact across working-class families, but, uh, for example, there's going to be a, uh, a push... Uh, to make sure that women who are subject to domestic violence have some paid leave. There was, of course, major attacks on the Abbott government in their disgraceful double-dipping accusations against uh, working women who take uh, maternity leave. And again, the ACTU—it's—it's it's always been the fact that we were going to have the basic government scheme, very basic. And the ACTU wants to push that up from 18 weeks leave to 26 weeks leave, and then, as well, to complement that with your enterprise bargaining, you're able to have uh, more uh, benefits for paid parental leave, uh, and so that's going to be, uh, uh, you know, that's going to be pushed. Um, it's very important to have strong laws with regard to the right to strike, and this program has been arguing this for some time. Uh, there was a fair bit of debate behind the scenes, but eventually resolved uh, that the basic position should be that the current penalties, and there are many of them, against workers and unions taking in industrial action should be repealed, that you start from the basis that no worker taking in industrial action should be subject to any coercion or fines. This policy's ACT also extended to repealing the prohibition on solidarity strikes uh, to allow industry collective bargaining strikes. And also there was a debate on the question of the lockout. People would remember the quite vicious lockout by Qantas without any notice at all. Well, some unions put up that uh, Qantas should have given three days' notice, and then after debate that was changed to say that employers should not be able to lawfully lock out their workforce at all, not at all. No lockouts, no Qantas ability to do that. So I think that was um, quite a strong position. Again, this is just a policy. The question is how do we implement those uh, policies? Um, there are very strong policies developed to uh, make sure that uh, women are able to take more active leadership In unions, across the board, demanding a 50-50 argument for women participating in unions. Already strong participation of women in unions, but uh, even stronger. Listeners to 3CR would be aware of the multinationals developing with, particularly Obama in America, but throughout the Pacific region, what is called the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And again, this is a big working class issue because these corporations want to have laws where they have the ability to push their interests against the domestic laws of countries so that they can maintain their profits even if in a particular country like Australia passes particular laws regulating these corporations, the corporations then through this uh, partnership, so-called Trans-Pacific Partnership, want the right to override the uh, conditions in all of the particular countries. Well, this was very uh, strongly uh, supported and there's quite a movement building up to uh, put pressure on the uh, government and the Labor Party and the Greens are also campaigning as well. I should have uh, added that the... um, Uh, There was quite a lot of unity between sometimes regarded as left-wing unions and right-wing unions. Uh, For example, uh, construction workers in Western Australia, and again covered by uh, Marcus on this program, had hundreds of construction workers on a rally protesting against cutbacks to apprenticeships and to wages and conditions. Now, these hundreds of workers have been picked out by the building commission to be fined, and this is just to threaten construction workers and oil workers that they shouldn't even have the right to protest. Now, again, the unions are very strong on this, and both the uh, Dave Noonan from the CFMEU and Scott McDevine, Secretary of the Australian Workers' Union, argued strongly that Really, in a Labour government, we should have a police force and a watchdog that goes after the employers, that goes after their exploitative practices, that makes sure that employers who have negligently killed workers at work, that they are subject to industrial manslaughter. We've got to reverse these policies. Again, that was solidarity, very strong. Again, the difficulty is how do we get ordinary workers in other unions to support, for example, the construction workers. How do the construction workers support nurses, support teachers, support cleaners? And it's the development of that unity amongst workers and across unions that is particularly important. Of course, the corporations, the government, play their divide and rule tactics, divide the unions, divide them up into one union here, get the unions to fight each other, not cooperate, not put the effort into it, uh, not take the attitude that the working class has to have and develop greater power, otherwise we won't be able to defend our interests. Um, anyway, these are some of the contexts. Can we develop, through the ACTU policies, a strong and viable working-class opposition? We'll yet to see whether this is going to happen, but with uh, 3CR and listening to all the arguments, we'll have a good opportunity.
3: And that was Chris White reporting back from the ACTU Congress. And listeners, it's that time of year. It's 3 cr Radiothon time activate the airwaves. For almost forty years, 3CR Community Radio has staked out a vital place on the airwaves, allowing us to bring news, analysis, music and the voices of hundreds of community groups to the people of Melbourne twenty-four hours a day, seven days a week. Passionate crew of more than four hundred volunteer programmers broadcast in 130 programs each week in approximately twenty different languages. The station relies on its annual radiothon to keep the station on air for the next twelve months covering bills, licence fees, equipment upgrades and the skeleton administrative staff. Activate the airwaves. Donate to 3CR. You can do that by making a tax-deductible donation online at 3cr.org.au by calling the station on 0394198377 or you can send your cheque or money order payable to the Community Radio Federation Limited PO Box 1277 Collingwood 3066. Radiothon time 2015. Donate to keep 3CR and Rank and File Radio on air for another 12 months. And that's all we have time for on Rank and File Radio this morning on Community Radio 3CR. Tune in next week, Saturday, June 13, for the special Radiothon edition of Rank and File Radio.
0: Music Matters is having a film fundraiser come along to the fantastic new documentary about the life of Amy Winehouse. It's happening around 6:30 at the Kino Cinema in Collins Street in the city Thursday the 2nd of July. Tickets are $20 concession, $25 full. You can buy your tickets online at cr.org.au or come to the station 21 Smith Street in Fitzroy. Or phone Loretta during business hours on 9419 Support 3CR. Support Music Matters.
5: Oh,
0: wonderful singer Amy Winehouse. Such a pity that she uh, shut her eyes so early and so young. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie on. Uh, 3CR, and uh, uh, this is the time where I tell you a few things, give you the heads up on some things that you might want to go and involve yourself in. The uh, community vigil on Friday, June the twelfth. There's going to be a community vigil outside Richard Wynne's office in Smith Street, corner of Smith and Peel Street, Collingwood. What's it about? It's about shut down Hazelwood, Victoria's oldest and dirtiest power station costing $9, $917 million in hidden costs to people and the environment. Uh, as they say, Labor promised to close Hazelwood down in 2010. Politics intervened. But uh, now we need to keep up the pressure until it is shut. 8 to 9am, Office of Richard Wynn. Meet at the corner of Smith and Peel Street to... Uh, show your displeasure at uh the Hazelwood uh, dirty coal mine down in uh, Latrobe Valley. There's um going to be on uh the same uh day, same night actually, six thirty PM on uh June the twelfth, public meeting an evening with Cornell West. Now Cornell West is a African American philosopher, academic, activist Author, public intellectual, and prominent member of the Democratic Socialists of America, and uh, when uh, Sister Zia from uh, Hip Sister Hop did an interview with Cornell West, I was panelly, and I'll tell you, the cool was everywhere. It was the coolest place in the whole of Melbourne when that interview was being done. I think Cornell West is. The Epitome of Groovy, African-American philosopher, worth going to listen to. He's going to be in conversation, I believe, with uh, uh, um, Gary Foley. There you go. 6.30 p.m. Bookings. uh, uh, It's at uh, the Convention Center Place, South Wharf. M-C-E-C. One Convention Center Place, South Wharf. There you go. Public meeting, Cornell West. I M C E C. I think you should be able to find out more about that if you do a Google. One convention centre place, South Wharf. Now, the reason for why Lali, uh, Lalitha Chalaya may not be here on uh, the uh, Solidarity. Breakfast Radiothon next June, uh, June the 13th, next Saturday, is because she's part of uh, the speaker sequence for the forum book launch and film preview, Women of Steel, uh, which is going to be on down at the Electrical Trades Union, 200 Arden Street, North Melbourne. It's at 2pm. It's organised by Solidarity a socialist Alliance and Greenleaf Weekly. It's uh, a book launch and film preview, Women of Steel, which is a video and book deal with historic 1980s struggle of women for employment at the BH, BHP's Port Kembla Steel Plant. The speakers are going to include Robin Murphy, Jobs for Women activist, producer of an upcoming film called Jobs for Women, Emma Kerrin from the National Union of Workers and Solidarity Breaks' very own Lalitha Chalaya, a long feminist and socialist and one of the organisers of the historic 1986 Nerthers Strike. Now, that's all going to be down at the Electrical Trades Union, 200 Arden Street, North Melbourne. Now, we're going to move on to... This is the week that was...
2: A week, Solidarity Breaky Team, lister when... Oh, just a quick update. As at 8.15, the U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, and therefore true blue Aussie, tongue out, licking vigorously, are not yet at war with China. That's reassuring. But a week, but I don't get it. When evil unions demand pay increases and crippling conditions, those who understand the delicate flower that is the economy tell us this will destroy the world as we know it. Just this week, when the Fair Work True Blue Aussie no longer work choices just looks like a commission gave a pittance to the lowest of lowest low paid, the caring employers told us just how selfish these lowest of lowest low paid workers are, destroying caring employers and, more importantly, costing other lowest of lowest low-paid workers for chance to work, costing other workers jobs. And we know jobs are all caring employers care about. Every time they're faced with serious challenges like having to pay workers, their first thought is the impact on jobs, the workers they so care about so when a not so evil union recognizes these problems and agrees to reduce wages and conditions and inflate its influence on the socialist party where it can argue the poor caring employers case we'd expect the caring employers and the mainstream media which is also a caring employer to praise responsible union non bosses because union boss is a pejorative responsible union officials seize a million for instance, but no. Apparently they want union officials to fight for higher wages and conditions. It's all very confusing, but let us thank Caesar and whoever else gets caught up in all this, if the story proves correct, because what a contribution they've made to the authenticity of the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Kanga mission, providing them with ammunition which may not be a fizzer, a beat-up with friends like Caesar, Bill and Co, who needs? And a week when this Treasury official said the housing market was in a bubble, which mightn't be a bad thing, because for those who can't afford a roof over their head, a bubble would at least provide more protection than the gutter, although big supremo tiny a bit more for the bosses said he hoped the value of his little family home would keep increasing. That is not to say I am a great believer in making housing affordable. Uh, So you want the price of houses people can't afford to become more unaffordable so they can afford them? Certainly not. The people I talk to assure me they can afford housing. Lots and lots of housing, in fact, addressing the affordable issue by making more homes available for rent. And they appreciate little government incentives like negative gearing and other tax benefits which can only help the affordability uh, thingy. How much is your government, by the way, providing for public housing which would help address the problem? public housing is a most inefficient way to address the bubble unaffordable issue the solution to housing affordability lies with the private sector with the lean mean hand of efficiency and as i said the people i talk to have no affordability problem which proves my point on him the Blood is Thick as a Brick award of the week to Christine Forster, who wants to marry her same-sex partner and is, of course, Tiny's sister, who attacked poor Socialist Party Supremo Bill Shorten Ambition for moving a same-sex marriage bill, pointing out her brother made it clear same-sex marriage should be owned by the whole Parliament if this change happens putting her faith in tiny. Christine, your blood is thick as a brick award is on the way. On tiny and real marriage, all these Catholic bishops, other than those charged with covering up child sexual abuse, issued this joint statement that besieged Cardinal George Appalling, a.k.a. Pell Pot, was a man with a big heart. Behind that appearance of coldness, of haughtiness, of hubris, Of cover-ups, of denials, of insincerity, lies a big man with a big heart. They assured us as if we needed assuring, and what a convincing defence. George's close mate Tiny pointed out that government had protected children from abuse by making it compulsory for professionals like doctors working with children to report any suspicion of child abuse. There are penalties including imprisonment for not reporting child abuse, for not reporting child abuse, tiny stressed. And you've passed new legislation making it a crime to report child abuse in our razor wire concentration camps. Uh, That's right, it's in the interests of national security. So so doctors on the mainland can be jailed for not reporting child abuse, and in our refugee prisons, they can be jailed for reporting child abuse. Exactly. Unlike the socialists, we take all steps to protect the true blue Aussie people all steps to protect the true blue Aussie people. But I must correct your use of the term prison, a typical 3CR distortion, all the more reason for responsible thinking people not to donate to Radiothon. These are Pacific Island holiday camps. They are not prisons. Uh, But Tiny, we're sending our most dangerous prisoners who create problems in mainland prisons to these facilities, so they must be prisons. The illegal, no-proper-papers, queue-jumping boat people are in a different part of the prison, Uh, sorry, the facility, so it is a prison. No, no, the dangerous prisoners are in the bit that is a prison, and the dangerous illegals are in the bit that isn't a prison, uh, with the same guards. The same people, but they are guards in the dangerous prisoner bit, and friendly, warm support staff in the dangerous illegals bit. And this child who broke his arm and hasn't received treatment, why are we sending him to India and why can't we treat him on the spot or bring him to True Blue Aussie? For a start, we are not sending this potential terrorist to India. We decided not to send him to India on the humanitarian grounds that we got sprung when some Jesus-hating goody-goody leaked the information. Potential terrorist? We are protecting True Blue Aussie people, protecting True Blue Aussie borders. We can only imagine the damage, the threat this young terrorist could cause attacking people with a plaster cast. In his commendable self-appointed social role as protector of the great values we should share and denouncer of the dangerous values we must eschew, Lord Rupert of Whopping, through his Whopping sin and presumably his Sydney tabloids has rightfully and properly attacked this New South Wales Greens MP who sounds like he's almost as big a threat to our security as that young potential terrorist running riot with his plaster cast. If he ever gets to be treated so he can get a plaster cast and let's Maybe he doesn't, but Jeremy Buckingham's this dangerous Greens name and how's this for a list of anti-social, anti-true-blue Aussie threats earning him the title buffoon from Lord Rupert? He called Caringbush President and ubiquitous Melbourne social guru Eddie McGuire, you poor I'm rich, a continued bullhead Eddie, for Eddie's little comments attacking Adam Good's Indigenous dance in the Indigenous round. He sucked on an e-cigarette in Parliament to highlight loopholes in tobacco legislation. He copped a libel writ from a Hayseed and Sheepshit Party MP, a former MP, for anti-coal scene gas cl- Comments. He publicly criticised Zion over its treatment of Palestinian children. He, he's obviously out of control. Other than, which bit of that litany of sin would we disagree with? But, but if Lord Rupert declares him a buffoon, he must be. Wonder if the hayseed and sheepshit party XMP is X because of the coal seam gas backlash. And how dare this international get-together claim True Blue Aussie is taking a free ride on climate change, sponging on the rest of the world. For goodness sake, we're the biggest per capita contributor in the whole world. And and both the caring business class government and the socialist party would-be government are determined to reduce our emissions by a whole 5% of what they were in 1880 or something like that. The rest of the world is so bloody arrogant. It's not easy cutting emissions while increasing your use of beautiful coal and beautiful oil and beautiful gas, but we're trying. The bad, bad, bad joke of the week award, well, to me, those... sorry, a carper's in Montana who pulled over a bloke or or guy for driving erratically and discovered he was transporting five beehives inside his car with bees everywhere. And the obvious week that was, line, you got it. They said he had been caught in a sting operation. Well, I warned you, I said it was bad, bad, bad. Speaking of sting and arrogance, drug cheaters, they called him Alberto Contadope, won the Giro d'Italia riding a special converted syringe on wheels reinforcing our confidence in the once fine sport of cycling and finally a first for the week that was but so important issue we had no choice the first time we've ended with celebrity news and this week our poor little rich girl spared her a thought award as we head toward radiothon also needing money i fell upon an old quote from our celebrity news staple our dear little paris Apart from a big feet, next to the standard pouting picky with those come hither eyes alluring us, everything bad that can happen to a person has happened to me, yeah, like inheriting so much wealth, you never have to do a real day's work in your life. Good morning. That's right. This is Brother West from the American Empire, trying to keep alive the legacy of John Coltrane, Curtis Mayfield, Nina Simone, and I am so glad you are listening to the 3CR, because 3CR is a force for good, is telling the truth, and allows you both to laugh, not at, but with others. Oh, what a grand radio
3: station it is.
0: Uh, hello, you're back with Annie in the studio on Solidarity Breakfast and we've got uh, Noah on the line. How are you, Noah Brazil?
4: Good, thanks, Annie. How are you?
0: Wasn't that a groovy uh, ID? That was Cornell West, Brother oh, West, I as thought, he calls himself. I thought it might have been. Isn't he cool? Yeah. <laughs> He's so cool. But we're talking about uh, cool things too. The Arab Spring and Egypt uh, seems to have... Uh, been um, the, we're seeing witnessing a sort of uh, extraordinary reintegration of Egypt into back into the U.S. imperial architecture, as you so beautifully put it. I was wondering about uh, the d- incredible—it uh, seems to me incredible—announcement that Mosi will be has been sentenced to death.
4: I mean, it is incredible. Um, it's n- I mean, it's not unexpected given the um the sort of approach that this particular government has taken. I mean, they've used the Muslim Brotherhood who, I, you know, I, I personally have a lot of criticism for for the way they handled themselves in power and also, I don't see them as really uh, re- representing a uh, counter-movement uh, in Egyptian or society really.
0: And I must uh, say that uh, as a woman, I find them absolutely freakish.
4: Yeah, well, I mean, you know, as as a number of people have pointed out, and certainly I, I would agree with, the Muslim Brotherhood uh, and the Tea Party in the US or right-wing conservatives have, have a great deal in common. Um, their social policies are almost identical, um, yeah, and uh, their, their economic policies uh, differ very little as well. I mean, on both sides, they're very much wed to the notion of the market economy and the, the free market and financial capital um, and uh, and privatisation and outsourcing most government uh, um, services and operations to mainly religious private organisations, which, you know, when we think about how the Abbott government and Baird in New South Wales, the Baird government, uh, are doing very similar things, uh, then, you know, it's, this is not what the... Mother- Muslim Brotherhood is doing or ha- or tried to do, um, is not unique in any means. It's very much following a pattern that we've seen in Christian countries as well. Um,
0: However, so, they they weren't the uh, flavour of the U.S. administration quite clearly.
4: Uh, look, I don't know if they. Uh, I mean, I I, I I think the U.S. would have worked with them. They were, certainly worked with the, the ACPA in. Uh, Turkey, which is a ver- version of the Muslim, the Turkish version of the Muslim bro- Brotherhood, I guess, to, in a certain to a certain extent, who have ruled Turkey now for about ten years. Um, there's no, uh, and you know we know the the U.S. has worked with Islamist governments. They're one of their closest allies, certainly one of their closest allies in the Middle East is Saudi Arabia, um, which you know is the Islamist government, um, and it's worked with the Mujahideen in. Um, Afghanistan, some people believe it 's worked with various uh, Islamist movements in syria um, in fact in- uh,
0: recent uh, evidence is being uh, coming out of the Guardian regarding u uh, s and English support of uh, military support of ISIS, which has meant that uh, they were, the courts were unable to prosecute uh, a particular fellow because it was too embarrassing uh, to reveal. Their involvement in ISIS.
4: Yeah, look, I, I mean, I, whether the US and UK were directly involved, I, you know, I'm still. I think this, the evidence is still a bit. For me, it's still it's still a little bit uncertain, but certainly Saudi Arabia um, has been heavily involved in supporting ISIS. And if Saudi Arabia has been doing that, then it's sort of the US by proxy, in my view, anyway, because so the Saudis are the major uh, sort of. Uh, uh, the thrust of US imperialism in in that part of the world, as we're seeing in Yemen now, and we saw in Bahrain when it was the Saudi tanks that went in to crush the pro-democracy protesters back in 2011 uh, to safeguard the uh, US base, uh, the US uh, naval base in Bahrain. So, um, yeah, there's no doubt that ISIS, at least in, in some... I mean, there's a sense, I think, that uh, the, the U.S. and its allies in the region have been playing both sides uh, to, or have been using ISIS in, in a dual way. The first way was to try and topple Bashar Assad. Uh, when that seemed to fail, they then used it as a justification for further military intervention in that part of the world. So um, it's been movements like that are very useful and they... Certainly have been, in, I, I think in my view, uh, provided a great deal of uh, legitimation for continuing U.S. imperial policy in uh, the Middle East. As we saw with Libya, I mean, you know, that Gaddafi had been rehabilitated. He had uh, signed a great deal of uh, Libyan wealth over to foreign corporations and had undertaken a number of major reforms by the IMF. Uh, you know there was nothing to suggest that he uh, needed to go, but it was a great opportunity for the u s and its European allies to um to ex- exploit the they exploited the anti Gaddafi protest to intervene in Libya. now you know four years on we 'd say that 's you know proven to be incredibly uh, i mean as much short sighted well, short side but also, you know, as, as we know, these sort of external interventions that lead to um, the overthrow of leaders, even unpopular ones like Gaddafi, often lead to a vacuum that's more dangerous than the leaders themselves. Some sort of organic process of change you know, if if possible, would have certainly delivered a much better result for the Libyan people.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, for the for the people, that's true. Uh, I mean, it, let's bring it back to uh, the thing about um, Mosi being uh, given yeah. a death sentence. Uh, it actually ties up with uh, um, what you would consider to be uh, the notion of a stable uh, society. Uh, and even in inverted commas, uh, what a civilised society would prefer to be, uh, and the concept of democracy, which the Americans like to purport to be the the spokespersons for. Uh, but I mean, with this sentence, what they're saying is that uh, uh, anything goes. I mean, Edo Min was not even executed he was allowed to go and live out his days in yeah. another country. So the rules have changed, haven't they?
4: Well, Mubarak wasn't given a death sentence, even though you know, he was tried and, and then acquitted of um, crimes. You know, he spent the best part of 30 years in power. Uh, you know, there would have been a huge amount of evidence uh, to link him to uh, torture, murder, uh, a whole range of corruption, a whole range of other things.
0: So why Mosi? Uh, why Mosey?
4: Um You know, I think uh, I, there are a couple of things. I mean, domestic politics suggested that that al-Sisi, that, that partly al-Sisi's uh, l- legitimacy, and, you know, it's a very tenuous legitimacy, uh, resi- really uh, uh, rests on his repression of the Muslim Brotherhood. Al-Sisi um, came to power... Uh, through a military intervention that was sparked by massive protests against the Muslim Brotherhood in 2013. I mean, one of the underreported or unreported elements of those protests were that they were actually larger in number than the protests that brought down Mubarak in 2011. That was the level of antagonism to uh, the Muslim Brotherhood. Now, you know, that was partly uh That you know and this is the irony of it, I guess it was partly a response to the fact that, after hard won uh, sort of freeing up of the state and the um, and the economy to some extent well freeing ups the wrong word, but certainly some expectation that uh, after thirty fifty years of um, military rule uh, that overthrowing Mubarak would lead to some uh, you know sort of greater democratic uh, Egypt was really challenged and under undermined by Morsi and so this brought people out the streets in huge numbers in an attempt to try and rescue what they believe they had, had fairly won the irony is that now a couple of years after that Al-Sisi's taken power the military's back in and many people bull- and you know he's he, his rule is very much uh, modeled on that of mubarak's uh you know the mukhabarat the secret police are out the uh, uh sort of limitations on uh, political act- activism and uh on uh, the press and media uh, have been restored and um the economy is very much back in the hands of of the of the military and uh and that crony capitalist class that uh, ruled under um, under Mubarak, so the irony of the attempt to rescue democracy from um, from the Muslim Brotherhood has led to its uh, even further demise
0: you're um, on uh... the
4: thing we've got to keep in mind is that you know this this is an ongoing struggle, and there is a lot of Egyptian activists and um and opposition that continue to struggle against the uh, the military rule and the and, and the limitations on freedoms that have been imposed so this is an ongoing struggle and i think egypt's probably at the forefront of uh, of any particular possible democratic and progressive uh, change in the middle east uh, one oh. of the reasons morsi has been uh, sorry morsi has been um, sentenced in that way, and that Al Sisi has been so hardline is that, in some ways, it's also a message to those opponents of the regime that he'll he will spare no um, uh, efforts in ensuring that that uh, Egypt doesn't slide into that uh, progressive. Um, open democratic uh, future and that that I think is part of what's happening in Egypt at the moment.
0: Just to let listeners know they're uh, listening to Dr Noah Purseil who uh, uh, works at uh, Macquarie University and is a Middle Eastern expert. We're we're on 3CR and this is Solidarity Breakfast. We're talking about Egypt and uh, just before we leave the issue of uh, the uh, activist movements within Egypt there's been a uh, a rather public um uh demonstration at a german press conference with uh the um as uh, a sissi was being uh, awarded more german um uh, uh, support money uh by the uh uh by the what was, is she a premier what what are they the german what's the german uh anyway they there was a public app, you know in in front of uh Uh, cameras and all the rest of it. And it was around the uh, arrest and incarceration in Egypt of socialist lawyers that uh, has recently uh, been happening. So uh, obviously uh, the activism hasn't uh, uh, waned. Uh, In terms of uh, the accumulation of wealth, it's been reported that uh, uh, the people who are the most wealthy in Egypt uh, have in fact increase their share of the pot by about 80%. And um, I was wondering if you could make any uh, have any discussion about this new city that apparently is being built in Egypt using uh, a lot of American investi- investment.
4: Um, I don't know about that specific one, but, I mean, new cities have been springing up around uh, the outskirts of Cairo for some time, and they're very much... Uh, um based on the ga- on the gated city model that that some that, that some u s cities have uh, had uh, in recent years and also place in south america i believe have similar um, and and South Africa have similar um, um, sort of city setups where um you know they 're sort of they 're protected from the rabble um by uh, fences and and uh, security guards. Um, there, a couple of years ago, when I was there, there, there was a new one that was being built just on the hills, on the sort of outskirts of uh, Cairo, which was uh, going to be, you know, the, uh, incredibly luxurious and uh, highly priced. And so, I mean, that's not a, that's that's something that you know I think has been going on for some time. Um, but as the Pot of wealth continues to concentrate, or as Egyptian wealth concentrates, and the middle class gets squeezed. It's going to be uh, difficult to, I think, to to to, um, understand who will be living in these new cities. uh, Whether this is just a housing bubble and investment, Uh, we've seen again, you know, in other places such as Spain and elsewhere that those, and and in China. Uh, that those uh, new developments uh, tend to lead to uh, to, to quite uh, problematic investments and uh, financial risks, uh, whether that's happening in Egypt uh, or, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to say from here, but certainly there is that potential, I guess.
0: Yeah, I suppose I mean, it's The thing
4: it's, is that these people have so much money, they're looking for new ways, ways to invest it, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and it's also uh, I mean um Kerry was there at the uh launch of this particular one that I'm talking about. Yeah. So it was quite clearly a uh, push towards a public event to show that uh business as usual America is counting on Egypt, I guess. Uh, yes,
4: yes, and um, I mean that's also uh, largely for the domestic audience than um in the Egypt as well that uh that the uncertainty of the last four years has now passed and, you know, um, Al-Sisi's got Egypt back on the straight and narrow. um, Uh, uh, uh,
0: Seriously, though, uh, with all the work and all the um, uh, demonstrations and all the rest of it, it it must be very disheartening for people in Egypt and, in a sense, uh, in other places to see the mechanism of people power being... uh, routed effectively would you would that be a fair statement
4: oh i think it's a very fair statement there is a huge amount of um uh you know the euphoria of 2011 2012 certainly dissipated and there's a there's there's a real sense i think in many circles that uh um that what whatever was won has been lost now completely um I mean, this is not just an Egyptian. I mean, the Middle East is probably one of the more extreme examples of the way that uh, um, that reactionary forces retake power. But I mean, we've seen it in uh, we're seeing it at the moment in Greece. I mean, Greece should have been a victory. Yes. Uh, you know, when Syriza came to power, it should have been a victory for uh, you know, sort of people, social. Uh, um, um, the social over the economic. But yeah, a
0: reali- realignment, a realignment. Yeah,
4: as we're seeing it play out, um, you know, Syriza are increasingly under pressure. Uh, we've seen during the week uh, attempts by them to negotiate further uh, in a way that would be reconcile some of their interests with those of the uh, big financial institutions, but uh, they're in- increasingly finding it difficult and maybe impossible to actually... Uh, deliver on the promises that they made when they were uh, elected and it not not for want of trying i don 't think this is a party that has as we 've seen with so many others betrayed their cause
0: no i agree
4: power i think it 's just the the facing the realities of the global. Um, economy and the and the power of the ruling elite is an in- incredibly difficult thing.
0: Yeah, I think so. Uh, it's um, like a, a machine that's gone amuck. I mean, if we go back to the notion of the the uh, instability uh, that's been caused in uh, Syria and uh, Libya, like uh, it's like uh, it's these things were made to happen, as it were, with uh, apparently some goal. Now humans have a uh, generally speaking consider that uh, there should be some uh, goal for uh, any action some yeah. reason for doing it uh, and it, in, it's increasingly looking like that uh, uh, a very small group of people or a uh, an economic order which doesn't matter doesn't care if there's chaos as long as money is being made
4: I mean I think that that's I mean there's certainly that element to it but I think the more dangerous element is the fact that there is a large proportion of people who mean well, who actually buy into the logic and the propaganda and the ideology around which that ruling elite um, um, uh, sort of shape uh, or argue their, their policies. I mean, Libya was very much about, you know, the, the sorry, Libya and the support for intervention in Libya came mainly from liberals. That's right. Um, Crazy. People who believe that the intervention would lead to a better outcome. Um, you know, these aren't people who, you know, many of the people supported it, weren't thinking about, uh, you know, military arms sales and, uh, you know, the privatisation of, um, of Libyan um, resources or oil. Uh, they weren't thinking about the, the uh, uh, expansion of U.S. global hegemony. They were thinking about what was best for the for the Libyan people, and you know that in in some sense it's the it's the overall logic and the the coherence of the of the um, the message that uh, is more dangerous, I think, than the 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 interests or or in the way that it's aligned with the interests of the ruling elite. But it's that sort of sense that we live in a time where uh, war equals peace and justice is is really, um, I think, it, it, for me, is one of the, the, the really um, difficult things to comprehend or at least to to um, to try and unwind. Um, you know, it's the, the concept of the Pax Americana, the great peace of the American era, is very much about war and intervention. I mean, the US has intervened and fought wars in many parts of the world in the last 30 or 40 years in an attempt to keep global peace. I mean, it, it, it's a huge contradiction, but it's one that people accept without a great deal of um, question. Uh, going into, you know, drone attacks in Yemen, Pakistan, um, Iraq, Syria, and, uh, all uh, Somalia, uh, all meant to maintain peace. I mean, you know, this is the strange, I, I think, contradiction and... Um, to unravel, how that ideology constructs the way uh, uh, that legitimates this sort of, these sort of practices.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. It, it's a, a very dangerous period. I must say, though, that um, I've been reading a book about the, <laughs> it's a very fat book, but it's a short history of the Arab people. And yeah. uh, what I was noticing was that, uh, and it starts just before uh, uh, Muhammad comes onto the scene, you know, in around 7th century. And uh, there's this uh, fascinating element to it that, uh, one, it tells me about a, an empire that I'd never heard of before, the Sasanian Empire that was huge, but also that uh, there were there seems to have been uh, battles in Syria and Iraq in that space for many years. They seem to like to have battles in that particular spot.
4: Well, I mean, that's, there is a certain... Ele- a historical element to, to it. And, you know, it's a crossroads in a way between uh, the Middle East or the Arab world and the and sort of the Persian or Arab, uh, non-Arab world. But, I mean, you know, people try and draw these lines between the Middle East of the past and today. But if we're going to use that same logic, then we, we would... Um, would we not say that, you know, between France and Germany, there'd be yes. fighting
0: for millennia? That's true. Well, we uh, would... We would yeah
4: but we we tend not to because we see Europe as developing forward, whereas uh, many people can try and um, locate i mean you know that 's
0: true, but you're trying to
4: locate the problems for um, for what 's happening in the Middle East in some you know sort of long distant past I mean a number of people who have said that ISIS is um, a remake of you know events fourteen hundred years ago when oh. When right. the Arabs, you know, emerged out of Saudi Arabia and try to create the caliphate, has been astounding. I mean, you know, we would not use the same sort of logic to describe, uh, you know, Western expansionism or imperialism or.
0: Well, know, they of, never talk about the Austro-Hungarian Empire. No.
4: no. <laughs> so, so, I mean, you know, this is the thing that, in in a way, the the analysis of the Middle East doesn't have a historical uh, element to it. It's just rooted in this sense that everything in that part of the world repeats itself ad, ad, infin, ad infinitum.
0: Which Whereas, is not true.
4: Which is not true, of course. Mm. Uh, the reasons for why, I mean, you know, my argument would be that the reasons why we have some a, a group like the Islamic State is that the politics, the economics and the culture of the region has been uh, entirely um, deformed by external and internal forces that have tried to uh, hold on to power illegitimately. Uh, we think about Saudi Arabia and the way that it has funded and financed uh, right-wing Islamist groups, uh, the way that uh, um, um, illegitimate governments in the region uh, use is- Islam and Islamic movements to, to crush any any progressive forces. I mean, you, ju- you mentioned how al-Sisi is jailing socialist or... or um, progressive lawyers, I mean, that, that middle class and that sort of progressive element in the Middle East has been in, entirely, um, you know, sort of repressed and, and, and almost destroyed in the last 40 years uh, in the attempt of keeping the imperialist project intact in in the region
0: yeah dangerous yeah. stuff we'll have to we 'll have to leave it there Noah and uh, you 're going to be uh, thank you very much for talking you're to us welcome. today and next week you 're going to uh, talk to us during radiothon
4: absolutely absolutely I mean we are very fortunate here we are the remnants of a alternative media uh, many parts of the world they don 't have that and uh, we need to be committed to it and to ensure the uh, continuation of radio shows like Solidarity Radio and 3CR and others like it around the country.
0: We'll talk to you next week. Thanks, Annie. Bye. Bye. And that was Noah Basil, Dr. Noah Basil from uh, Macquarie University. We had uh, a speech by uh, Robert Reich today. We also had uh, Rank and File and this is the week that was. This is Annie signing off. Coming up next is... uh, Uh, Asia-Pacific Currents, and we'll go out with Phil Oakes on Liberals.
1: One of the shadiest of these is the
5: Liberals. (laughs) An outspoken group on many subjects.
1: Ten degrees to the left of centre in good times.
5: Ten degrees to the right of centre, if it affects them personally... So here, then, is a lesson in safe lodging.
0: You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.